turn with me once more to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We've been plodding along through the first of Paul's two letters to the Thessalonian church. And last week, we spent all of our time focusing on one singular command in the first half of chapter 4, and it was this, abstain from sexual immorality. Now, if you grew up in any self-respecting evangelical church over the past 20 or 30 years, I can guarantee you that this was the constant drumbeat every time the youth got together. <laughs> abstain, abstain, abstain. Don't have sex outside of marriage. And that's a good thing that all Christians need to hear, and particularly our young people. But it's really only half of a good thing. Because the Christian life isn't just about what we don't do. The Christian life is about what we... I was going to say do-do, but I didn't. It's about what we do. <laughs> the Christian life isn't just about don't do this, don't do that. No, God says don't do this, do this instead. In Paul's letters, we often hear him talking to believers using language like put off these things and then put on these other things. Put off the deeds of the flesh, put on the deeds of the spirit. Put to death the old man and walk in newness of life in the new man. Today in the modern church, we don't often speak in language of vice and virtue anymore. But these are words that historically the church has used for the way that sanctification works. This putting off of sin and putting on of righteousness. Sanctification is not just about not sinning. It's also about doing righteousness. So we've really only done half the job if we are abstaining from sin. We've got to put on virtue in its place. As Paul would say, it's not that we're striving to be unclothed. We're striving to be further clothed. In uh, his book, The Mortification of Sin, this was the first place that I really came to grasp this idea. John Owen writes about how it's not simply enough for us to just be constantly killing sin. Because the problem is, and if you've ever had a garden, you know this is true. You can constantly be pulling weeds out. If you don't plant something else in its place, guess what? Eventually, the weeds are coming back. You can spend all this time killing sin, but if you don't put righteousness in its place, you're not going to succeed. Eventually, sin is going to start cropping back up again. There's only so much abstaining that a young man or a young woman can do. You can preach don't, don't, don't every week, but eventually you've got to get around to preaching the do, do, do. What are you supposed to do in its place? If we don't teach Christians how to do righteousness, then we're setting them up as idle men and women told not to do things but never given any Christian duties. We're setting them up for a great fall. So the question for us this morning is, 
If we're supposed to not indulge in sexual immorality, if we're supposed to be abstaining from that, what are we supposed to be putting in its place? We don't engage in sexual immorality, but we do what? What is, if we think of sexual immorality as the vice, what is the virtue we're supposed to be building by the Spirit in its place? Interestingly, what Paul juxtaposes, he puts sexual immorality as the opposite, this morning we're going to see, of brotherly love. Brotherly love is what we're supposed to do in place of sexual immorality. We do acts of brotherly love. Paul wrote at the beginning of chapter 4 in verse 1, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And this is what governs the entirety of verses 1 through 12. He is showing us what we ought to do, this is the walk that pleases the Lord. It begins with not doing one thing, but then we have to add to it the doing of something that pleases God very much. So the walk that pleases the Lord is one that is devoid of sexual immorality, but one that is filled with brotherly and sisterly love. And Paul says, this is the will of God for your life and for mine, that we demonstrate and live in brotherly love. Let's stand together as we receive this word then from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 9. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. For we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. May God bless the reading of his word. Really just uh, two very straightforward points that Paul makes here in this short section. And they're this. Brotherly love, if we want to comprehend what it is God wants us to do when he talks about Philadelphia, brotherly love. It means two things Paul shows us. Number one, love one another more. Love one another more. And secondly, be a good brother. Or be a good sister. That's what it means. To show and to live a life of brotherly love. Is to love one another more. And to be a good brother or sister. Let's think about those things. For a few minutes. Love one another more. It sounds really simple at the start of it. Almost like a no brainer. But what is love? We have commercials today that say, love is love. 
which is basically to say, love is indefinable, or love is whatever you feel it to be. How do we know love? Listen again to verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. So did you catch that? Who is it that we are learning about love from? Who's the one that's teaching us? God himself. We are God-taught when it comes to our understanding of brotherly love. Here we find the source. Love originates in the God who is love. Our culture says love is love, and the Bible says, no, that's not actually true. God is love. We learn love from God. He has taught us love. Where? How? Well, the Father has sent His Son, Jesus, to be the perfect demonstration of brotherly love to us, hasn't He? God has taught us brotherly love and what it looks like by sending Jesus to be our perfect brother. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We learn brotherly love when we go to the foot of the cross. That's where God teaches us what love is. Maybe this morning you're struggling with loving your brother. Maybe in your darkest moments you admit that you actually hate that brother, biological or otherwise, or sister. If you are storing up hatred and jealousy and anger and rage in your heart against your brother or sister, the scriptures could not be more plain. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. The Apostle John is telling us that if we don't know brotherly love, it's because we don't know Jesus. That's where we learn how to love. His own jealous brothers conspired against him, rigged a trial, convicted him of false charges, hung him naked on a cross, and then laughed at him as he died before their eyes. And then on the third day, Jesus comes back from the dead, and why? So that he can exact his revenge, to make them pay, to get back at his brothers? No. To bestow on them and eternal life to all who realize and are willing to acknowledge that Jesus is the only man in all of history who has demonstrated brotherly love. That he died, laid down his life for the sake of his family, his brothers and sisters. Will you this morning lay your hatred and whatever envy and selfishness you are holding on to in your heart and lay it at the foot of the cross Jesus has promised that he will send his spirit to wash that heart clean. And all of a sudden, for the first time, he will help you to experience what it means to love your brothers and sisters. God can teach us brotherly love, and it all begins at the cross. But you know, the life of Jesus, from start to finish, really was one long act of brotherly love. Certainly it culminated and climaxed at the cross. But from the moment Jesus was conceived, he was already submitting to God's will. And what was God's will? It was for him to perfectly love his brothers and his sisters. Yes, he died for us, 
But he also came to care for lepers. He also came to weep at funerals with those who'd lost their brother. He also fed the hungry. He came to preach the good news to the poor, to heal the blind and the lame. He also came to free those oppressed by demons, to teach men and women the way of the kingdom. Surely the cross is the crowning achievement of brotherly love. But really the whole life of Jesus we see in the Gospels is one act of, after another done from a heart overflowing with love for his brothers and sisters. And so as we read the Gospels, God is teaching us through his own son what it looks like for us to live lives filled with brotherly love. May we go and do likewise. May we love one another more. Well, what does it look like for a church to live together in brotherly love? Well, once again, Paul says God has taught us, and sure enough, we have an entire book that really demonstrates to us what it looks like for a church to live together as a family, and not just like a family, as the family of God. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we read, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's what it looks like to see a church living as the family of God. Living in brotherly love. Families get together. Families eat together. They worship together. They play together. They prioritize time together. Provide for one another. Live together. Learn together. Make memories together. Serve together. Love their community together. God is the source of all of this brotherly love. And he teaches us how to love one another more. What about the scope of our brotherly love? We're called to love one another more. And the question then is, who is my one another? The thing is, in the Christian life, we're all given the same one another command here. But we're not all given the same one another's. And this is a huge sticking point in a seemingly simple command. Love one another more because today, perhaps more than any other generation, we are very confused about who our one another's are. So here's my question, and I, I think you'll understand where I'm going here. Is the internet... Or is social media a place where we can love one another in a meaningful sense? I find if I'm not careful, I'm drawn into a world where I cannot really exercise brotherly love with anyone. And it can be debilitating, demoralizing, desensitizing, distracting, and deceitful. Just follow the logic with me here. 
And maybe you've experienced this in your own life. It's debilitating because on social media, or even if you watch a lot of the news, or you read a lot of the news, we are inundated with the needs of people we have never met, needs which we do not have the ability to meet, and needs which we can never do anything about. And this constant barrage prevents us any chance of spending any time on extended meditation on how even to love wisely and deeply in any of these circumstances because things are always so urgent. And then it's demoralizing because what settles in to the backdrop of our life day after day is this extreme sense of guilt because we see all these needs that we are not doing anything about. And then it becomes desensitizing because the way that we cope then with this guilt is we just try to feel less compassion. We teach ourselves the practice of seeing the needs of others and then be resisting the urge to do anything about it. Little by little, every day, just quieting our hearts. It's distracting because while we are busy pouring ourselves out, our hearts and minds into events and needs and crises of people online whom we will never see face to face, less and less are we engaged in the events, needs, and crises of brothers and sisters whom we see every day. Finally, it's deceitful because we short-circuit sacrificial brotherly love by engaging in online emotivity that makes us feel compassionate but requires no real sacrifice of our time, energy, efforts, or resources and no long-term investment. To borrow John's logic, which we have already heard this morning, how can I love another on social media whom I do not see if I do not love another in my own church, in my own home, in my local community whom I see all Brothers and sisters, we get so confused about who our one another's are, but it's not confusing. You just need to look around you. <laughs> look at the people in your local church. That's where it starts. Those are the ones God is going to hold you accountable to on the final day. Have you loved these? The names of the people whom you have covenanted together. These are the ones. Start here. These are your one another's the members of your church. That widow, that single mother, those children, that single. These flesh and blood people that he has placed in your church family are the brothers and sisters that you are supposed to love one another more. Start here. But interestingly, Paul widens the scope to also show in verse 10 that we also have a responsibility to love other churches. Verse 10. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So loving one another more is not just about a person-to-person -person relationship thing. It's also a church-to-church -church relationship kind of thing. This is why things like the Emmanuel Network and the Reedy River Baptist Association are so essential for us in fulfilling the commandment of God. 
our brotherly love is supposed to spill out invisible demonstrations of love for other churches as well. This is one of the reasons why Emmanuel Baptist Church is coming here at the end of July. Raising their own funds, sending 30 of their own people, taking their own vacation days to come and serve and love and benefit Collins Street Baptist Church, it's because they are demonstrating to us an outflow, an outpouring of brotherly love for us. I wonder, Collins Street Baptist Church, how we are endeavoring to grow and to show brotherly love to our sister churches in sacrificial ways such as these. Love one another more. I think the most surprising thing, though, about this section is the more and more of verse 10. So we had this source and the scope, and then now we have this striving aspect of our love. In the first three chapters of this letter, and even into chapter 4, Paul basically establishes the Thessalonians as the example par excellence in demonstrating any virtue you would want to see in a church. And in chapter 4, he says... You all are the supreme example of brotherly love. And then he says, and there's still room for more brotherly love, even for you. This is the striving of brotherly love, never being satisfied. More love, more sacrifice, more brothers, more sisters, more brotherly love. We want to love better, more wisely, there is no plateauing in our love. We cannot let it grow cold. This is Paul's first instruction regarding brotherly love. And it seems so simple. Love one another more. Which brings us quickly to our second point this morning, which is equally as obvious as the first one. So we're supposed to love one another more, but brotherly love also means that we need to be a good brother. We need to be a good sister. And that's how verses 11 and 12 relate to verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10 show us how to love one another more. Verses 11 and 12 show us how to be concerned with being a good brother. Let me read to you again verse 11 and 12. And to aspire to live quietly or peaceably and to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and to be dependent on no one. What Paul is laying out here is the ideal family member. Someone who aspires to live peaceably, someone who takes care of their own affairs, someone who works hard. We all know that family member, right? The one who always seems to be stirring up trouble at family reunions. The one who always has advice for other people's lives but never seems to be able to get their own affairs in order. right? That family member who's always saying, hey, can, can you loan me a couple hundred bucks? right? We put up with these people because it's family, but that's not what a good brother is. It's not what a good sister is. A good sister wants to be known as the family peacemaker in her workplace, in her home, in her local church, in all of her relationships. Whenever you find a disagreement, whenever personalities are rubbing each other raw, she's the one you want in the room to help sort it all out. 
That's a good sister. A good sister knows it's not all about what I want. It's not all about what you want. It's about what God wants. And what God wants for us is to be at peace with one another. And that's what we're going to strive for. A good sister, a good brother is willing to lay down their personal preferences, lay aside their status if it's going to make for peace in the family. A good brother minds his own affairs. He gets his own family to church. He looks after his own walk with the Lord. He keeps a close watch after his own integrity and when he's at work and in his community. He watches, as Paul commands Timothy, over his life and doctrine. Would anyone trust a brother who seems to be overflowing with advice and wisdom for you in your life, and when you look at his home, it's in shambles? No. You get your own affairs in order. That's one of the best ways you can be a good brother, is so that when you do have advice to share or wisdom, the family's ready to receive it, because you've been taking care of your own affairs. And a good brother, a good sister, is one who works hard with their hands. As Christians, we know that work is not a curse. It's a part of the blessing of God. He has made us creatures meant to work for His good pleasure. So many people are toiling out there in the thorn fields of this world, sowing sin and reaping death. We are those who know that as we continue to sow, if we do not give up, we will reap a harvest in good time. A brother, a good brother, realizes how family works. If I don't provide for myself, guess who's going to have to do it? My family. My brothers are going to have to provide for me if I don't provide for myself. A good brother says, I don't ever want to be a drain on the family if it's up to me. In fact, he works even harder and he prays, God, give me extra because I want to be able to care for others in the family. I want to be able to give when others have need. And this all flows from brotherly love. I love my brothers and sisters, and so I never want to take advantage of them. I want to be a good brother, one who is peaceable, minds his own affairs, and works hard with his own hands. You know, the cool thing about brotherly love is that it is deeply attractive to the world. When a church is filled with good brothers and sisters, who love one another more and more, sinners find themselves drawn by the gravitational force of brotherly love into the family of God. Listen to the result Paul points out in verse 12. So that you may walk properly or in a reputable way before outsiders and be dependent on no one. The church isn't out there in the world begging for bread. The church isn't leaning on the government for help. The church isn't in the courts of the rich and famous pandering for approval and help and attention. The church doesn't depend on outsiders, Paul says. In fact, just the opposite. Outsiders see the family of God gathering around the throne of our brother Jesus Christ and they want in. They want in on this. Whatever's happening in this family, I know I don't have. I need it. Do you notice how unfretful, unstressful, unclamorous, unpanicked this all sounds as Paul describes it? 
I think of this passage and I think about Daniel and his three friends when they were taken into exile in Babylon. The Bible says they were found to be ten times better than any of King Nebuchadnezzar's officials. And why? Because they were so good at climbing the social ladder. Because they had insider tips. Because they were willing to do whatever it took to get ahead. No. The story goes that they abstained from what would have made them impure. And then they devoted themselves to one another and to what pleased God. And they were recognized as being so different from the rest of the world. When men and women in this world realize that even their own biological family at times are going to stab them in the back and are going to gossip about them and abandon them or divorce them or whatever, give up on them, where are they going to find true family? If the church looks just like the rest of the world, they will have nowhere to find brotherly love. But we're supposed to be a bastion of Philadelphia, of brotherly love. The church should be the one place when someone feels at the end of their rope and they have no brothers or sisters in the whole world, they can walk through the doors of the church and find people who will love them for who they are. The church ought to be the one place they can go and they're going to experience something they've never found before, love that lays down its life for the brothers. Brotherly love is what this world is hungering for and they're feasting on all kinds of cheap imitations. We live in a world where people go about sarcastically asking, am I my brother's keeper? And the church ought to be the one place that they hear a surprising answer. You know what? Yes. Yes, I am. I am my brother's keeper because my brother, Jesus Christ, is keeping me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do ask that you would pour your love into this church. We pray this for all the churches of Newberry. We pray this for the churches of our association and the Emmanuel Network, God. More love. More of your amazing love. We pray that we'll set the church apart with this amazing mark of quiet, peaceable, brotherly love. We pray this all in Jesus' name.